Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihira Zazan. Khalil Bendeep is away. This week, we speak with Ella Shohat, Professor of Cultural Studies and Women's Studies at CUNY, about her latest award-winning book on the Arab Jew, Palestine and Other Displacements. In her book, she gathers together her most influential political essays, interviews, speeches, testimonies, and memoirs, as well as previously unpublished material. Professor Shohat's text fundamentally challenges the conventional understanding of Arabs and Jews, Palestine, Zionism, and the Middle East. Professor Shohat spoke with Khalil Bendit. So, Ella, you're an Arab Jew from a Baghdadi family, now living in New York. In your most recent volume, this book, The Arab Jew, Palestine, and Other Displacements, you deconstruct any number of articles of faith of the Zionist uh, propaganda and speak of the Jewish victims of Zionism, the Sephardim in Israel. You argue that the colonialist ideology of Zionism has not only affected the Palestinians, certainly, but also the majority of Israel's population if you consider that there are more Sephardic Jews than Ashkenazi Jews. Tell us a little bit more about that. The first essay included in the book from 1988, it was actually written in dialogue with an essay written by Edward Said. Mm. The essay that Edward Said wrote in the same journal in the first issue of Social Text was called Zionism from the Standpoint of Its Victims. And it became a chapter in his book, The Question of Palestine. When I became a member of uh, the journal Social Text in the 80s, I wrote an essay that actually continued this argument, but this time bringing to the discussion a less known history and part of that history that was isolated and was not seen as part of the same problematic idea, on the one hand, colonialism in the region, imperialism and colonialism, on the other hand, Zionism and its relation to Palestine. And I wanted to broaden the discussion and extend the conversation in relation to the Arab Jews, which is why I, you know, named it in relation to Edward Said's essay. So this time, the assumption was that, yes, Palestinians have been the victims of Zionism, but let's now look at another dimension of the story. And it is a kind of a colonial story within the larger colonial story. Mm. And I started discussing what happened when Zionism arrives to the region And I mean not only Palestine, but also the Middle East and North Africa in general, and how it affected the place of Arab Jews, Jews in the Middle East, who were now caught between, on the one hand, Jewish nationalism and on the other, Arab nationalism, and in relation to the colonial discourses and practices in relation to Palestine. And it was important for me to show that it would have been impossible to think of Israel and what has happened without also addressing the Sephardi Mizrahi or the Arab Jewish question in terms of practices, in terms of ideology. So if you count the Israeli 
Palestinians, who represent about 20% of Israel's total population, and then a little more than 50% of the Jewish uh, Israeli population, which is Sephardic, we're talking about 70% of Israelis who are non-Ashkenaz and non-European. And if you include Gaza and the West Bank, we're way beyond those numbers. Why does this matter to you, the fact that it's so lopsided? Why is that an issue? When I was writing the essay in the 80s, the proportion were actually even more so in terms of the majority. That's the kind of uh, statistic that I'm speaking about reflected at the time. Since then, there have been uh, more immigration from uh, Russia, etc. So the numbers have changed. But the argument, to an extent, reflects a historical and political issue, which is we have a Eurocentric ideology that sees itself as an outpost. I mean, and this was already at the turn of the century, the way Herzl, the founding father of Zionism, in his book Altneuland, The Old New Land, imagined his idea of utopia in Palestine as European Jews bringing light and civilization to the wilderness. So for me, the very formation of the Zionist idea has to be seen in relation to other colonial discourses, especially the civilizing mission. Therefore, within Israel, Jews and Arabs have been completely separated by looking at the problem through the colonialist history and through the imperialist narrative, I was able to reformulate the question of and the experience of the Mizrahim to give it a name because there has been a lot of pain, a lot of about dislocation, a lot of injuries that were psychic on the one hand, but also economic, political. People were kind of disoriented. What kind of explanation do you give to this phenomenon of being massively dislocated to the Arab world, arriving largely to Israel, and then being discriminated? What kind of understanding do we give it? So many sociologists, anthropologists in the 50s, in conjunction with various, say, the French and how the French spoke about Algerians, and they cite French sociologists, for example, or they cite American sociologists in relation to African Americans. And the idea is that we are inferiors because of the Levantine or the Arab primitive culture that we brought with us to Israel. That was the dominant way of explaining the discrimination and being at the bottom of the socioeconomic of Israeli society. But if we take another way of analyzing it, and that's what I was trying to do, we can completely understand it differently. Understand that already with colonialism, Jews in Muslim societies suffered along with Muslims discrimination racism, but with the arrival of Zionism, they were suddenly redefined as Jews and were displaced and were lured often with messianic promises. So religious ideas were translated by Zionist discourse into ethno-nationalist ideas. And in that way, often Jews were lured. The other element was the tension and the war and the violence that was shaping around Palestine 
when Palestinians were becoming refugees and arriving to the Arab world. And that created a very vulnerable situation for Arab Jews. So this is a very problematic history, but the arrival to Israel meant that that history was erased. And the only way to think about the problem was, it was called the economic or the social gap between European Jews and Arab Jews. But if we take colonialism, we can fully understand that this is an ideology of so-called civilizing the primitives, and that had incredible negative impacts on Mizrahim Sephardim. One of the things really struck me reading your book was I didn't realize how classical the racial hatred was. You say that they would often describe the Sephardim in zoological terms, and that exactly. Ashkenazi was resorting to the bestiary when describing them. You quote a Harris uh, journalist saying, quote, they put me in the same cage as a hysterical baboon, and they tell me, okay, now, you are together, so begin the dialogue. Speak to him nicely. Throw him a banana. You people are brothers. End of quote. What strikes me is all this talk of racial purity that obviously the Jews in Europe suffered from, that they would now use it against <laughs> their own core religion. This is really quite amazing to me. As if there's a race, an Ashkenazi race, as opposed to this other race of Sephardim. What is this idea of racial purity that we hear about in Israel? Yeah, actually, this was written in the 80s. And this kind of language has not completely, <laughs> unfortunately, disappeared. The kind of prejudicial language, the racist ideology that we often see in Israel has to do with internalizing. There is a kind, I speak about this colonial specularity, the notion that Ashkenazim experienced racism in Europe, but internalized it. And then in return came to project it onto their barbarian co-religionist. One can think about even in the French equivalent of the civilizing mission, were the schooling system of the Alliance Française Israelite, which was implemented throughout the Levant. And the idea was that Jews will receive a good universal education. French Jews actually were part of the implementation of a universal, the notion, so-called universal idea. But this also continued in Israel. That type of internalization and the educational system within Israel was that because Arab culture is so inferior and seen in such a negative light, it has to be rejected. And therefore, anything associated with Arab so-called race, Arab culture, Arab physiognomy, Arabic language has to be rejected. And unfortunately, that's where I speak about the ordeals of civility in which also... Mizrahim, Arab Jews, ended up internalizing that type of ideology, that kind of discourse, in the very same way, ultimately, that all colonized people, and Franz Fanon really elaborates and speaks about it in a way that I found very useful for the Mizrahi situation, that Arab Jews themselves internalized this kind of perspective and started self-rejecting their own experiences, their own history, at least for several decades. Yes, and there are so many quotes where racism is so blatant and so open 
I didn't expect that even for the 50s. I mean, you know, the 50s things. <laughs> it, it was the high age of colonialism still worldwide, certainly in Algeria. We were hearing similar things in Algeria from the French, but Jew on Jew, that's something that I didn't quite expect. Yeah, that's why it was important for me to say that religious background is not sufficient to explain and speak about the situation of Arab Jews in Israel, because otherwise we won't have enough methodological tools to analyze the situation, which is why for a long time in this work, I refused the notion of internal problem, internal Jewish problem versus external Mm. Arab problems. For me, the two issues are related. So the question of Palestine, therefore, is historically but also ideologically related to the question of the Arab Jew. Again, this is not to suggest that all Mizrahim would suddenly agree with my analysis or would see it through the same perspective. But this type of analysis try to suggest that what happened among Jews is very much haunted by the colonial experience and by the very fact that within Israel, Euro-Israelis have come to see Jews from the Middle East in the very same way that colonialists saw Arabs in the Arab world. There is no much separation or distinction. The only time that we have a complete kind of refusal to acknowledge it is when the Palestinian question emerges and then the idea of Jewish nationalism comes to, in a sense, obscure the relationship between the racism toward Arab Jews and the racism toward Palestinian Arabs. So many of these anecdotes that you write in your book also remind me of colonialism in Algeria. Obviously, one thing that we always heard in Algeria from French people was how simple the locals, the indigenous Algerians were, and they were so easily satisfied with not much that they preferred actually to sleep on the floor than sleep in a bed. (laughs) (laughs) And this is something you describe as well. Yeah, Right, right. Or in the case of the North African Jews, some of the anthropologists who were studying them were insisting that they lived in caves. They were cave dwellers. I mean, that became a very important idea of uh, how... Zionism rescues Jews not only from the Muslim oppression, but also from their own primitive culture. They borrowed the language of colonialist discourse. I mean, there is the erasure of Arab history, of Arab culture, of Arabic language was practiced exactly in the same way that was practiced in places like Algeria. Only here, there is a much more complicated narrative because we're speaking about the fact that Palestinians were dispossessed and now Arab Jews were arriving from other Arab countries. And they were even more vulnerable in the sense that they were no longer living in their own millennial places where they used to live. Being displaced added to their vulnerability vis-a-vis the establishment. And that kind of dependency, you know, we speak about in colonial situation on the dependency of the colonized on the colonizer but this is even more so when you have situations of dislocation where your network where your language where your identity is shifting overnight with the massive dislocation 
from Arab countries. And now your Arab countries are the enemy of your current country. And in that situation, and that's why it was important for me not only to speak about the economic, the social, the political dimension, but also on the psychic dimension. Because without understanding how colonial violence inflict injuries on one's psyche, it would be hard also to understand the political positions that oppressed group end up taking sometimes against their own interests or in denial of their own history and identity. One myth that you take on, this uh, narrative by Zionists, they try to portray the, what's happened to the Palestinians and what's happened to the Mizrahi Jews as somehow balancing each other. That sure, we've been a little bit unfair to the Palestinians, but so have the Arab countries that are expelling these poor Jews that we are accepting here in Israel. Why does that not work, that symmetry? I don't see it as an equation. I see the two issues, and in the introduction to the book, I actually dwell on it quite a bit, the relationship between what I call the question of the Arab Jew and the question of Palestine. The fact is that probably <laughs> Arab Jews would have not been displaced and dislocated without the displacement of Palestinians. But why does dislocation happen? It is not an equation here. Palestinians, as they were displaced because of the partition of Palestine, the establishment of Israel, did not necessarily mean that Arab Jews would have to be displaced. Now, one can accuse Arab governments, and some Palestinians have actually seen Arab government as sometimes collaborating with colonial regimes and with uh, the Israeli government, and some did, and that had negative consequences for Arab Jews. At the same time, one has to remember that that question and the fact that Zionism from the very beginning when it wanted and needed despite its racist attitudes, nonetheless needed Jews from Arab countries already dating back to the turn of the century. When it sent emissaries to Yemen, one very well-known, Yavnieli, to bring Yemeni worker, Yemeni Jewish workers to so-called compete with the local Arabs. So from the very beginning of the implementation of what they called Hebrew work, it worked simultaneously in terms of taking lands, giving no rights to the fellahin, feeling threatened by the fellahin who the, may want the, the to work the, the land, yeah. the peasants, the, and therefore bringing Arab Jews and Jews from Yemen in this case saying, and I cite, they wanted them precisely because they are Arabs in the form of Jews, they called them. So from the very beginning, the two issues work together. Certainly, when Israel is established and there is a demographic need, there are activists, there are Zionist activists in the Arab world who were creating sometimes tensions. Other times, they were luring Jews on false messianic ideas. So there were different reasons. So we cannot just call the problem of, on one level, one can call it Arab Jews as refugees. And I wouldn't even mind that because people were displaced and dislocated in ways that is unlike immigration because they could not go back mm -hmm. for the most part. 
But what I find problematic in this narrative, when that question, and I think the question of the Arab Jew is now posed in relation to Palestinians to somehow suggest that Palestinians have no rights, no rights to make any claims for the land, for property, for any kind of a future in Palestine, because Arab Jews were displaced. This is where the problem actually of this discourse emerges, when rather than seeing the two issues as related in opposition to one another, but rather they emerge in the semi-historical context, but they are not similar. In the case of Palestinians, it's a clear case of people who were dispossessed and had to leave and wished to return. In the case of Arab Jews, it's much more ambiguous. I'm not saying it is not a tragedy, I've lived this tragedy. It is a very painful tragedy. People lost a lot. They lost economically, politically. They lost identity. They have not been permitted even for many generations, actually, even to mourn that kind of dispossession. But one can speak about the dispossession and what happened and even criticize Arab regimes and how they contributed in very unfortunate way to our dispossession without saying that that should somehow uh, suggest that Palestinians have no rights. Actually, we should address all the abuses and not suggest it's one at the expense of another. And unfortunately, I have critiqued some of the ways that those uh, sites on Jews as refugees from Arab lands for the most part, they never cared about Arab Jews or about Mizrahim. The only time we emerge as being cared about is only when we are used against Palestinian rights. I'm trying to say not in my name. When talking about one of the reasons, certainly one major reason why Arab Jews were brought to Israel, you make that one motivation is very clear by showing, quoting people like Yaakov Tahon of the Eretz Israel office to say, Quote, since it is doubtful whether Ashkenazi Jews are talented for work other than in the city, there is a place for the Jews of the Orient, and particularly for the Yemenites and Persians in the profession of agriculture. Like the Arabs, they are satisfied with very little. <laughs> We're coming back to that idea again. Yeah, I mean, they created a kind of an Orientalist narrative. How are you going to suggest the luring, as it were, of people who live in different spaces, countries, whether it is intentional or not, it really is not even important. What's important is the formation of an Orientalist perspective on Arab Jews that justified and allowed an uprooting of a whole population. This is a form of population engineering. In some of the essay, I say, I call it the anomalies of the national and the colonial in the case of Zionism, because the anomalies is because usually the ethno-nationalist formation emerge on one particular land. I have problems with ethno-nationalist ideologies in general, but in this case, there is a certain kind of anomaly in which one can argue that the state created the nation and not the reverse. The state had to engineer the transplant of population from across the globe in order to create a new state. 
And hence, the erasure of that history, and especially in the case of Arab Jews, because Arab culture was the culture of the enemy. But by trying to suggest that Arab culture is inferior, you justify what happened to Palestinians, but you also justify what happened to Arab Jews. But the difference is that now Jews had to be cleansed of their Arab culture, de-Arabized, in order to be incorporated to the new nationalist Jewish project. And in that sense, the Arab Jew was no longer possible. And that's why I speak about the idea of the Arab Jew as a kind of becoming suddenly oxymoronic. Exactly. To be an yeah. Arab and a Jew was never a problem throughout millennia. But suddenly it emerges as a problem, which is why I call it the question of the Arab Jew. And the reason why I say it's a question, it is because, first of all, we have an ideology such as Zionism that tries to solve the problem of anti-Semitism by defining Jews as a nation and having this notion of restoration or repatriation. But again, did all Jews come from that place called the land of Israel or Palestine? Even if we say support this argument, did this return mean that one has to push out and ethnically cleanse the land of Palestine from Palestinians? There are a lot of questions to be raised. So that's why it was important for me to link the two questions and then pose them within a larger framework of the massive dislocation that colonialism in general has generated. Because even if we look back to 1492 with the emergence of colonialism with Columbus's arrival to the Americas, it wasn't just that the European arrived and it wasn't just that they killed or massacred or committed genocide to the indigenous population. It is also that the population had to escape. People had, you know, communities were displaced, uh, moved from one place to another. So this massive dislocations only was accelerated with the expansionism of 19th century. And in the case of the Middle East, it happened with Palestinians and it happened with Arab Jews. And of course, it happened with the post, what is came to be called post-colonial or more precisely post-independence. These locations where various communities, say from Algeria, had to move to France or the fact that People had to be lured to France in the 50s, right, for well, for economic purposes and to work in the new factories and with the expanding post-World War II economy. That's Ella Shohad, professor of cultural studies and women's studies at CUNY, speaking with Khalil Bendib about her latest award-winning book on the Arab Jew, Palestine and Other Displacements. We'll hear more after a break. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.
what happened in Algeria was very similar. The Algerian Jews were assimilated into the French, or so-called French contingent. They became French over a few generations, and when France left, they found themselves leaving with the rest, <laughs> the rest of exactly. the, the colonials. There was the same yes, effort I, that I, we see today in Israel to bring anybody who's not indigenous. After a while, it didn't matter whether you were French or spoke French, we could make you French. Anybody was welcome as long as they were not Algerian. We're seeing the same thing today with the Palestinians. Russians, even non, non-Jewish yeah. Russians, can be turned Jewish, whatever. It's amazing how consistent some of these colonial mechanisms have been throughout the region. I'll go back to your first point, which I address also in the introduction to the book. It is really fascinating what happened throughout the colonies, but especially the case of Algeria, you know, with the 1870 Crimea Decree. Yes. You can call it divide and rule policies in which various minorities, religious or ethnic minorities throughout the colonial world, were privileged over the indigenous minorities were privileged over the indigenous majority in mm. a way of creating or destabilizing the relationship. So the Crimea Decree was certainly one example, but here applied to Jews in Algeria who did not ask for it necessarily. No, in the beginning they were <laughs> resisting it. The Jews exactly. didn't, for a long time were very shocked by this idea that somehow they could become French. And they opposed it, actually. And in fact, in the mountains, they did not even take that citizenship. So it more gradually more impacted the urban areas. But that process generated division between Muslims and Jews, which up to that point were seen as part of the same racialized, inferior indigenous people. But with this implementation of the kind of divide and conquer practices, Jews became citizens and then were privileged. And in that act, they were separated and were in a kind of an an ambivalent zone. They were neither French, even though in terms of their citizenship, they had French citizenship, but in terms of their racial, cultural histories, they were not. But at the same time, they were no longer part of the Muslim indigenous population. They were placed in an in-between zone. And I think up to now, I would argue that we still live with the result of that in-between identity and history of being neither Europeans, of course, and neither completely Arabs the way the Muslims were. I mean, the case of Algeria is much more exaggerated. I mean, it was not the case in Iraq, for example. In fact, in Iraq or Lebanon, because you had a Christian minority, the Christians were more likely to be privileged over the Jews. I think it's more pronounced in North Africa in that kind of way. And in fact, one can argue that the tensions between indigenous Christian and Muslims during colonial times was much more pronounced than between Jews and Muslims in the Mashrik. But only with the arrival of Zionism that balance started gradually to shift and certainly completely shifted with the establishment of Israel. So my argument as a whole was that I do not see Zionism as rescuing us from our Muslim oppressors, but rather as generating 
new problems that were not there, at least not in that kind of way, prior to the arrival of Zionism. Yes, and you quote some Palestinian leader in the beginning saying, we don't want our Jews to be separate. There are brothers there. There are indigenous people like us, and that, unfortunately, over time, changed quite rapidly. You also talk quite well about the economic dimension and how the chasm between the Ashkenaz who were already there and these new arrivals from Iraq, from Morocco. You see, there were economic motivations for bringing them to Israel. The Russian Jews, for example, and people from the eastern part of Europe were dreaming of going to America. They were not really interested in going to Palestine. It was hard to convince European Jews to come to Palestine. Some actually, post-Holocaust, some European Jews, uh, Holocaust survivors who did not want necessarily to go to Palestine or later Israel, sometimes were maneuvered to come there as well. But I think it was much more pronounced in the case of Arab Jews who had less control over their destiny, as it were. Once such secretive agreements were implemented, say, under the auspices of the British and with the Arab government that were appointed and were supported by the British, as in the case of Iraq, one cannot really speak about a choice. That's why I say the term, even the term, this is for me really the question of agency is important. The fact that they were later exploited within the Zionist project and that there was an economic interest in bringing them is crucial. At the same time, one has to understand and reflect on the question, why did they end up there in terms of did they actually want to go? And this is really important to understand that the question of agency, whether Arab Jews wanted to leave Iraq or wanted to leave Syria, was not really their choice for the most part. And if they did make that choice, often, I would argue, it was made on false premises. Something that was promised to them, and not only economically, may have been religiously, messianic ideas, or economic betterment, especially for poor Jews in various areas, that there will be an economic betterment. So the economy of once arriving to Israel and being turned into laborers was not the only problem. I mean, it went end in end with being categorized as inferior people, with experiencing racism, while, and what I try to say why it is not even the classical immigration of mobility, which happened in the case of, say, Eastern European Jews or any kind of immigration to another country, the idea of social mobility, economic mobility, ended up in reverse for the most part in the case of Arab Jews in Israel. You find kind of an anomalous situation in which educated Iraqi Jews had their children not even finish high school. That was a reversal of the situation and where educated people became suddenly laborers. You say that entire families of Yemenis were crowded into stables, pastures, windowless cellars for which they were obliged to pay or simply live in the fields. Yeah, that was especially in the turn of the century. But that was also true in the 50s. I mean, people ended up living in uh, tents, 
it was kind of a shock of arrival, arriving to a place, say some had, why I say it's false premises, because they believe that it would be a different situation or that in the state of the Jews, as Jews, they would be privileged or not privileged or at least have different economic situation. So if we speak about the economic dimension, there was a shock when they arrived and had to live in tents in the fields. This is in the 50s. And then were mistreated, abused, their children sometimes kidnapped, suffered the so-called radiation treatment for minor skin irritations such as ringworm. So all of those experiences cumulatively made most Mizrahim feel that they, at least up to the late 70s, I can certainly say that there was a feeling of alienation toward the state. I will never forget this sequence in the film Forget Baghdad, in which you are quite a bit quoted there. You're in that film. That film, we see new arrivals from, I think, Baghdad, and these poor people are being sprayed DDT. They're spraying DDT on them as if they're carrying the worst pestilence and they're endangering the rest of the population. Exactly. This is the whole notion of the oriental body being pathologized and animalized. We come back to the zoological trope, right? (laughs) We are carrying illness. You are just like an animal. That's why I'm saying it's not simply about the fact that educated people were suddenly sent to work in the fields that they were not used to and uh, physically suffered and for minimal wages. But it is the humiliation, mm. that kind of treatment that they did not expect. So I come back to the question where people say, well, they wanted to leave, they wanted to depart. But what is that agency? Again, we know clearly in the case of Palestinian that they did not want to leave. That's why I come back to the idea of for Arab Jews, there was a question why we can call it luring, because there were false promises on various levels, including the economic dimension, but they did not know exactly to what they are living or departing from their countries of origins. The situation because of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict was getting so scary. I'm not saying that Arab governments are not responsible for that, but I'm not reducing it to that question. But the shock of arrival and being in a new country that presumably is you're returning to your homeland, the land of the Jews, obviously did not materialize and quite the reverse. So therefore, I'm kind of also trying to suggest that this notion of return to the homeland is highly problematic. First of all, Jews did not live that far from Palestine Many of them often traveled from, say, from Iraq or Syria or Lebanon to Palestine, you know. And in the modern era, it wasn't a big deal to travel from Beirut to Haifa or take a train from Baghdad to Haifa, etc. So the notion that somehow Jews were separated if they wanted to worship for religious purposes or if they wanted to go there for businesses... That has existed, it existed in the past, but actually, in some ways, one can say this separation that came to exist with the 
partition of Palestine and establishment of Israel, now was not possible. Now they had to choose for the first time in their history between the land of Israel as a religious place of worship and Arab countries, Arab places where they lived for millennia. And against this idea, this questionable idea that somehow there's a Jewish race of some sort, <laughs> the Ashkenaz, you quote Arthur Rupin saying, quote, recognizable about the Yemenis, recognizable in them is the touch of Arab blood. As, right. And they have a very dark color. <laughs> I mean, that's like the yeah. worst thing you can say. It's very dark. You even speak yeah. of eugenistic discourse when it came to describing Arab Jews, which is really highly ironic, considering that eugenism was used against the, the Ashkenaz in Europe. And toward colonized people, of course. Yeah. So here again, we see how we cannot separate the Mizrahi Arab Jew question from the history of colonial discourse and the ironic twist of that history in which now they have been racialized by their own co-religionists. The notion of what is Jewish identity obviously is a crucial question. And here are the paradoxes. It's incredible because on the one hand, for the sake of making an argument about Jewish nation as an ethno-nationalist identity, the separation of the Jew from the Arab became crucial. But yet, for the sake of exploiting the racialist idea of the superiority of the European Jew over the Oriental Jew, for that explanation of inferiority and justification of their socioeconomic status, then the Arab or the Orient was now suddenly evoked in order to justify and explain the situation of Mizrahim in Israel. So you see the kind of contradiction between when one mobilizes the dominant ideology, mobilizes the Arabness of Jews in one case, and then erases it in another. That kind of, uh, one can call it kind of a flexible usages of racialist discourses and of course, in this new moment or when someone of my generation reclaimed Arabness, when it was taboo, that's why I called another book of mine Taboo Memories, Diasporic Voices, because the Arabness of the so-called enemy was such a taboo to reclaim. It could only use by the dominant ideology to justify our inferiority. But once we claim it, as a part of our identity, part of our history, you'll see some essays attacking my work called Rejecting the Arab Jew. So it's fascinating to me that we come back to the question of agency. When we are denounced and we're called Arabs as inferior people and therefore married to be educated according to European norms and then we're Arabs in the negative sense. When we reclaim it in the positive sense, there we cannot be an Arab. How could a Jew be an Arab? That's kind of only in the imaginary of some intellectuals, it is said. It reminds me of Zindine Zidane, who at some point, the Algerian French player, who was the best soccer player and, and won the, the World Cup for France. <laughs> they kept calling him a Berber, because they liked him. They emphasized his Berber identity, identity. rather than Algerian to make a point that... Or, 
Arab, yeah. To make a point, he's not an Arab, he's a Berber. But when he slipped and aggressed that Italian player who had baited him four years later, then they started calling him an Arab. He had devolved to the, the status of Arab. It also takes us back to the point about the question of minorities in the Arab world that we talked about. We talked before about the Cremier Decree and the separation. The same thing was the Berber Decree, right? The separation of the Arab from the Berber. They tried that less successfully, unfortunately for them, fortunately for everyone else. But right. it did leave a trace. There's still questions about... The attempt, at least, to the divide and rule here yeah. was the attempt to separate the Berber or the Amazir from the Arab. But the fact is that those identities have been mixed and have formed part of another. The same thing with, you know, the Jews as Berbers, Jews as Arab. It's not completely separable, those identities. No, they are but, not, yeah. But those kind of separations have been crucial, and they were kind of legalized, you know. By having those decrees, you actually implemented a certain kind of new reality, that shifted a long history of how those communities negotiated their identities, how they practiced conflict resolution, right? Whether legally or culturally, suddenly a new grammar of negotiation entered the colonial space, a new language, and of course, a new kind of tensions emerge. So the discourses of minorities in the Arab world still exist with us, and this is not to say that everything was wonderfully harmonious before colonialism, but that that kind of level of violence that was introduced and resulted in massive dislocation in the post-colonial or post-independence era has to still be understood vis-a-vis -vis that imperial history, yeah. whether it's so-called Berber, Jew, Kurds, Assyrians, etc., the fragmentation of the quote-unquote enemy, fragmenting the opposition. To come back to the Sephardim, you quote, I don't know if she had said this, Golda Meir, who had also said that there was no such thing as Palestinian people. She actually said about the Sephardim, those who do not speak Yiddish are not Jews. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that was a common perception, actually. Again, we come back to this question of those paradoxes. On the one hand, vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the Palestinians, Sephardim are claimed as Jews. But then vis-a-vis -vis the Ashkenazim, there is this ambivalent relation. But later, in order to generate a nationalist idea, this is actually part of my new work, which I touch a little at the last piece in the book. Now, the various languages that Jews spoke, and especially Arabic in the Arab world was redefined as Judeo-Arabic as if it is like Yiddish in relation to German. Just as Yiddish was no longer seen in, especially with the Yiddishist movement in the late 19th century, turn of the 20th century, they wanted to claim a certain status for Yiddish not as a dialect of German, but as a language of its own. A similar process has happened over the past few decades in relation to various languages spoken by Jews, but especially vis-a-vis -vis Arabic. Now, the Arabic spoken by Jews all over the Arab world, many different dialects, depends on the region, were now 
defined as Judeo-Arabic and it is seen not as Arabic. I actually wrote two years ago in the Arab Studies Journal an essay called The Question of Judeo-Arabic where I say that unlike the hyphen in the concept of the Arab Jew, which brings together the idea of the Arab and the Jew, often which have been since the partition of Palestine seen as separate ideas, the hyphen in the Judeo-Arabic actually separate the Arabic spoken by Jews from Arabic. I say, after all, Arabic is full of dialects. It's a heteroglossic language. There is no such one language spoken by Jews in the Arab world, and there is no even such one dialect spoken as an Arabic dialect of the Jews in the Arab world. In fact, a Jew in Baghdad spoke Arabic closer to the Muslims of the region than that Jew spoke in relation to uh, Moroccan in Fez. And similarly, a Jew and a Muslim in a city in Morocco spoke closer to each other. And some places, there was no distinction almost between, say, in Beirut. Class sometimes was much more of an operative category than a religious difference or an ethnic difference. It varied. But the notion of the Judeo-Arabic, I have argued, also came to create a kind of a nationalist idea. So from a moment where Yiddish is defined as the true Jew really speak Yiddish, all other Jews are excluded from the category of Jewishness, it also suggests that the Ashkenazim have the power to define who's a Jew and who's not, and according to their criteria. But once an Arab Jew claims that Arabness, or say we spoke Arabic, which, you know, usually even once Jews came to Israel, they were not allowed to speak Arabic. There was a serious taboo about you could not speak Arabic, you would be criticized, we're not an Arab country, you cannot speak Arabic. So when you have the only way to redefine that Arabic and legitimize it was academically by calling it Judeo-Arabic. And the emergence of a new field called Judeo-Arabic language yes, studies. Which is stunning. In Algeria, there was the awareness that a few items of vocabulary were different or additional in Jewish parlance, but there was no real difference in language. Just as you have certain words that came from Hebrew for religious practices, but also you have the traces of various languages depending on the region. Yeah. You know, in North Africa you would have... uh, Italian, Spanish. Italian, Spanish, Mm -hmm. etc. In Iraq you would have the traces of Turkish and Farsi, all depending on the region, but no language is pure. And Arabic has been susceptible also to the various languages of the region in which Arabic has been spoken for millennia. I guess what I was criticizing is the fact that for the first time in our history, to be a Jew and to be an Arab were defined in opposition as antonyms. This is what I was writing in the 80s. I was trying actually to suggest, let's redefine that. It's not an oxymoronic identity. And it's not just about the past, but it's also about a way of rethinking and redefining the present 
of Jews still speaking Arabic, that has also changed, but also the fact that a future, and if even we speak about languages, I mean, the fact is that even with languages, one can revive languages, reclaim identities, one reshape identities. There is nothing static about identities. Yeah. There is the or, politics or of culture yeah. or language or culture. It's also identity is not only what we are born into, it's also what we identify with. And that has to do with how we see the world, how we view history. And therefore, the question of the Arab Jew, it's about the past, but it's also about a certain kind of a critical utopia by looking into the past of, let's use the convivencia or the coexistence or living together of Jews, Muslim, Christians. It was not an impossibility. The golden right? age of Andalusia. Exactly. But Andalusia, I'm trying to say, was not only in Andalusia. Andalusia was throughout the Muslim world. Yes, yes, of course. Uh, that kind of melange, mixing, cultural creativity was throughout the Arab Muslim world. It's only so more famous because it's in Europe. You know, it's, <laughs> yes, again, that Eurocentric focus on things. Exactly. But, you know, one can say Baghdad was a form of convivencia of Jews, Muslim and Christians living together, creating, dialoguing. But rather than a, simply nostalgia for a past that could never return, I was hoping to formulate the Arab Jew also as a kind of a vehicle, as it were, to imagine another future. Yes, of course. And I want to come back to that. It's a very important subject. I didn't know that even in the labor uh, Zionism excluded Yemenis and prevented them from owning land and joining cooperatives. This I didn't know. He said, as with Arab workers, the dominant socialist ideology did not provide any guarantee against ethnocentrism. How long did that last, that exclusion from these type of protections, labor protections? Those examples were cited in the context of the turn of the 20th century oh, okay. when so uh, okay. there was a mission to bring and they brought about 10,000 Jews from Yemen. Mm. And that was the context in which the statement was made. But in fact, one can say that unfortunately, for me, it was important at the time to write because it was still under years of labor hegemony. But this socialist formation that were at the same time colonialist and racialist coexisted. I was kind of uh, deconstructing in a way the notion that socialism by definition necessarily is always already progressive. And to look in actually to explain why is it that what we call the left in Israel or at least the Euro-Israeli Zionist left has in many ways failed in its dialogue with Mizrahim and Arab Jews, and this is really unfortunate. So rather than try to have some kind of an essentialist notion about Mizrahim, Sephardim as Arab haters, which was the explanation at the time that peace now was giving for why Jews from Arab countries do not join peace now. But in fact, I was trying to show that throughout this history, many of the socialist leaders were unfortunately racist apart from the fact that they also participated in colonialist practices and did not imagine a full coexistence in the land of Palestine. So there was a question of Palestine that I find it is, after all, the socialist who practices colonization. 
On the other hand, it is also the socialists who were in power for at least up to 1977 who practiced exploitation and sold the Arab Jews through a racist lens. So therefore, the tensions and the conflicts between the workers, the Mizrahi workers, and the socialist government were there from the outset of the state. Ella Shohat is a professor of cultural studies and women's studies at CUNY and the author of the award-winning book On the Arab Jew, Palestine and Other Displacements. She spoke with Khalil Bendib. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. That's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 632, email vomekpfa at yahoo.com. Connect with us on our Facebook at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa or follow us on Vomina Radio. Please join us next time for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.